0: It's an honor to be joined today by Dr. Jennifer Silvers. She is an associate professor of psychology at UCLA and the Bernice Wendell and Wendell Jeffrey Term Endowed Chair in Developmental Neuroscience. She runs the Social Effective Neuroscience and Development Lab and is an expert in adolescent brain, cognitive and emotional development, particularly the development of emotion regulation. Jen, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for taking the time to be here. But why adolescent development specifically?
1: That's an interesting question. For me, I did not intend to really pursue research in adolescent development as much as I was fascinated by the biology of social and emotional experiences. And just like anyone who um, cares a great deal about mechanism, I I started to realize that one of the best ways I could understand how social and emotional processes, how they work, is by understanding how they're built in the first place. And to me, adolescence is a particularly dynamic period of change, both in terms of individuals' internal worlds, uh, thinking about brain architecture and also their affective experiences, and then also in their external worlds as they're um, navigating social changes, academic changes. All sorts of different types of of things that are changing. To me, it felt like a natural area of research for someone who just cared deeply about social and emotional phenomena.
0: There are some people who take that mechanistic approach to social and emotional development or behavior, like Doc Pinksep, who studied the neuroscience of play behavior in rats. So that's like a very neurobiological approach. And some people, do animal research, to generalize, to humans. Did you ever consider that, or was it always human-focused from the start?
1: I very briefly considered that in undergrad. I took one lab course where we were doing different kinds of functional neuroanatomy in animals. Honestly, I found it to be fascinating. I find it fascinating to read animal work and to collaborate with folks who do animal work. That was about it. <laughs> I just, yeah, you don't
0: have to read about that part generally. You can just read about how exactly. you tickle them like, with your finger and the oxytocin levels go up.
1: I like knowing the findings. I like understanding it. And I did not like performing that research. So I'm grateful I had the opportunity to take that one class and to learn what worked for me.
0: Does that make you an empath? Would you say you're higher in empathy than average?
1: It wasn't even... It's. I'm a I but I don't think... That wasn't really it for me with the, the animal work as much as I just didn't enjoy it in a way that I think I've, I have enjoyed working with humans. Also, as time has gone on, and maybe I had this this foresight at the time, I'm really increasingly interested in people's broader contexts. And so I think that part of what make, does make me really interested in the animal work is some of the really beautiful mechanistic examinations of different kinds of early life stress and its impacts on neurodevelopment. I'm really interested in that in humans as well, but I, one of the things I like about humans is that you can allow those kinds of exposures to be a little bit messy. And that's something that's a little different from how it's usually done in animal work.
0: Two massive biological oversights when I first got involved in adolescent development. The first was not really thinking that seriously about puberty. I was thinking as adolescence as more of this period, of social transition childhood to adulthood, you get increased autonomy, responsibility, maybe something's changing in your brain and, and like cognitive control or long-term planning or delay of gratification. But I was thinking less about puberty, which looking back now, this is a primary research focus in mine. that was surprising. And then insofar as I thought about hormones, which was not a lot, I thought of them as just this sort of biological genetically pre-programmed thing that happens and overlooks the massive environmental effects that a lot of that is through stress hormones like cortisol that has that can impact your pubertal hormones and influence the rate of pubertal development or the timing or tempo and so on and all of that i've only come to learn like in the last year or two partially thanks to this nature and nurture focus
1: yeah no i think that i think you're illustrating it's funny i was just working on um my slides from my developmental psychology class and trying to uh, proselytize this early for folks taking that of the sort of cyclical interplay between environment and these biological processes. And I think adolescence is a great developmental period in which to look at this. Um, and puberty is a, a case study of thinking about how prior and concurrent social experiences may uh, shape the timing associated with puberty. And then also, I think something that's underappreciated, I I have a graduate student, Claire McCann, who's really interested in this idea. I think it's often underappreciated, the social experience of puberty, especially for humans, um, where there's a very clear social comparison component often going on. It's not just that somehow having earlier or later pubertal timing, for example, has a biological difference, although it can, and that could be really important. Mm but also there's the sort of metacognitive awareness that one is early or late compared to peers. And I think that's that plays a really big role too in terms of people's experience of what puberty means.
0: Those effects seem to be particularly strong in girls?
1: Agreed, but also more studied in girls, I would mm-hmm. say. So I agree that what exists in the literature does point to that, but I, I think there's room for growth in terms of trying to examine this more carefully in boys, girls, and also gender non-conforming youth, non-binary individuals. Do
0: you have any specific hypotheses of male-specific effects of either earlier or later pubertal timing?
1: I'm sure. And I'm curious to find out. I'm, genuine, I'm genuinely interested in letting the data tell me what's going on with boys. There's some early work suggesting that sometimes earlier puberty might actually be helpful for boys and might give them great, better social standing, for example. I haven't seen that followed up as much over time, and it might just be my own ignorance because I haven't, I haven't tracked it as closely as I could have. But I'm really, I'd be curious to know, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of trade-offs that emerge where you might get better social standing, for example, but there might be more subtle impacts on other aspects of development that might not be as positive. I'm not sure.
0: Have you seen the data on the birthday distribution of Canadian professional hockey players? Yeah. So the ones born just before the age cutoff. So they're oldest of every cohort. They're like just slightly bigger, slightly stronger. So they're better in early years. And then they get more attention, more coaching. And it like, it just snowballs until you see that all of the professional players are born in the first half of the year or whichever half is the one where you're bigger and stronger.
1: Yes, I know. I birthed all of my children at the wrong time. All of them are going to be young for their class. So I think about this ever since reading uh, that that work. Uh, But I think it's a great illustration of how it's not that this one experience necessarily matters in of itself, for example, being the oldest in your kindergarten class. But you can see how these subtle differences and starting points can be built upon and magnify over time so that they can accumulate and, uh, and then ultimately lead to these different outcomes. It's, a, I think, a great sort of characterization of a lot of developmental phenomena.
0: So some of these, especially in animal research, the evolutionary biology approach, it's all about genetic fitness, and it's like a winner takes all, or the Matthew principle, rich get richer type thing. And then, but a psychologist could look at that and say, okay, you are the smallest in your class, the youngest, the type of person who says, Best to be the dumbest person in a room because then you're always learning. There's a sort of growth mindset. Do you think if you're youngest or just lagging behind in other areas, it it leads to a at least could lead to a better growth mindset?
1: I don't know if it will lead to a better growth mindset, but I think there can be subtle benefits to a lot of things that on their face appear to be deficits or to be disadvantages. That's what I was alluding to earlier when I was uh, thinking about, when you were asking about what I thought about puberal timing in boys. Most of the work that's examined, its consequences have had fairly short um, time frames that they've been tracking. And while I could imagine that, for example, if you're an early bloomer boy, that could give you greater social status earlier on in development. I could also imagine that might mean something like, what if you get pigeonholed into sports? like uh, the Canadian Mm -hmm. oculars? What if you miss out on other intellectual pursuits? Maybe if you're the slow, small, nerdy one, if that means you have more time to read and to try things that could fuel your cognitive development. I'm not sure. I think that there's a possibility, but very rarely in development is it a, this is 100% the better outcome. It's usually trade-offs that we see and switching around to developmental priorities. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the same is true here.
0: I wonder if academics are disproportionately likely to come from that shy bookworm introverted. Yeah,
1: There's your study. I think that'd be an interesting one to look at.
0: So that brings us to personality differences. To what extent is something like emotionality or ability to regulate your emotions, something like a stable treat that develops over time or that maybe has a genetic component versus something that's just a matter of habit or environmental circumstances
1: i'm laughing because i'm just thinking of my children and how temperamentally they, they each are their own person my personal take is that emotionality is probably more likely to be temperamental and somewhat stable in nature and that uh, the ability to regulate your emotion is more malleable Maybe I'm biased by my own sort of scientific agenda, so to speak, that part of what draws me to the study of emotion regulation is that it's something that I think can be sculpted by your environment, that experience can shape quite a bit. I think also there's just better, there's better evidence, I think, that emotionality in various forms is more a true core element of temperament. There's other aspects like that temperament that do seem relatively stable, effortful control that's related to emotion regulation. But I think there's more evidence that those that the sort of top-down aspects of regulation are more trainable and more malleable based on experience.
0: Anecdotally, I've observed that this research is me surge phenomena, it seems to occur at one of two extremes, especially in emotion research. Either you are great at emotion regu- regulation Or you have always been able to really get a sense of your own or other's emotions. And maybe that's, it's a mystery. Why can't everyone do this? You, that's a research question or the opposite. I think I fell on that opposite when getting interested in emotion. Like I had very poor emotion differentiation before I got involved in psychology. And then I started using the lingo and doing all of this introspection and did get better at it over time. And I still wonder. Compared to someone who this comes more naturally to, am I behind the curve, at least mm-hmm. compared to if they put the same amount of effort, but were funny, had a higher intercept, same slope.
1: It's a fascinating thing about studying emotion is that it's really hard to compare people because at the end of the day, in a lot of the, the gold standard for most emotional metrics is self-report. It's very hard to know how much there's reporting differences versus actual experiential differences. I think it's a fascinating question. I'd say for, I've definitely seen both as, as things that, among other scientists in the field too, where it's, that it can be motivating factors. I've been reflecting on this lately when raising my children, trying to remember where I felt like I was at emotionally as a child. And I think that my sense is that I was more high in emotional reactivity when I was young and worked very hard to develop regulation skills. And that's part of why I am so drawn to the study of emotion regulation because I see it as being something that's buildable and that can be such an asset to buffer people against um, stressors and, and negative emotion.
0: In the general population, is this a skill that looks normally distributed like height where most people are average and you see roughly equal numbers on the above or below average? Or is there any skew to it?
1: That's a really interesting question. And I think we don't know is the short answer. And partially because you see pretty different things depending on, first of all, there's a few reasons that we don't know. One is that most research on emotion regulation, like most psychological science, has not been done on the general population. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that it's, it's a hard thing to answer. The second reason I think it's difficult to answer is it really depends on what features of emotion regulation you're talking about. Um, And specifically, if you're thinking about people's capacity to regulate their emotion under ideal circumstances, so that's often what we're assessing um, in experimental tasks, for example. If you're looking there versus if you're looking at what people do in their everyday lives. Um, Those two things from my take in the literature and um, from work from my own lab, are not super highly correlated. They're actually pretty different. And I think they both are meaningful in terms of understanding people's well-being and they might, well, they're contributors to people's well-being, but they're two pretty different things.
0: makes me wonder if there's something like a marshmallow test, stress test. Do you know of work that's been done showing something like there are a subset of people who are, say, better at delay of gratification in ideal circumstances, but maybe worse than people in more high stress circumstances?
1: I have not seen exactly that. I think it's a really interesting question. And I've actually been thinking a little bit about this lately, about I've seen work that has looked at the effects of stress on emotion regulation as a general uh, sort of main effect. And I've looked at, I've seen work that's looked at individual differences on in emotion regulation. I haven't looked at, I haven't seen anything that's looked at what I believe you're to, and this is something I've been thinking about lately, um, which is like people who have a bigger delta between what they can do under ideal circumstances versus under stress, for example. And I think that's a really interesting question, especially raising small children. I'm struck by the same child who can look pretty controlled and pretty capable in one context is a basket case in another context. I remember when I was in graduate school and I, I had the good fortune of working with Walter Michelle pretty extensively, he was really struck by this. And that was one of the things he was most interested in with the, in the field of self-regulation was understanding the context-specific patterns for given individuals, why um, the same child who could be incredibly capable of delaying gratification in one context really could not handle it in another you would often give the example of politicians with this. But I don't know. I think that there's some, to me, that has a lot of real world validity that we might have these specific sort of stress sensitive effects in our ability to regulate. And that that might be a kind of individual difference.
0: It's making me think of basketball. I'm a really good shot just standing still. I (laughs) have a good chance of winning at horse, but during an actual game, I think I'm much worse than average. Once having to dribble and just navigate the stress of people coming at you, I, I get flustered. And I think someone who's a worse shot than me would probably win.
1: I think that's, and I think that's true for a lot of things, right? And I think mm-hmm. that might explain part of the divergence we see between people's ability to regulate in the lab versus uh, in real life is probably in some ways that you might have the the ability to do, but having that ability coupled with the motivation to execute it, coupled with the knowledge that's a good thing to try to implement in the real world, something that's likely to have high success and then doing it. There's actually quite a few steps that have to be in place in order for someone to execute a regulatory response or to execute a good shot under pressure. There's some, some linkages there.
0: Do you incorporate life history theory into any of this work on early life stress?
1: Not yet, but we might.
0: Okay. Maybe we should outline that first. Uh, (laughs) Would would you like to, or should I?
1: You go for it.
0: It's a life history theory stems from evolutionary biology and it's making cross species comparison. One extreme you have animals like mosquitoes or fish, they'll lay thousands of eggs, vast majority of them die. There's no parental care whatsoever, but they have enough offspring that Even if only a small percentage of them survive, that's stable across time. Then at the other extreme, you have mammals. So we only have one or a few offspring at a time, but there's lots of parental care and most offspring survive, and that's also a stable strategy. And you can have anything in between on that continuum. And also within species, you see the same type of continuum where if you are raised in a Safer, more stable environment with more resources, development tends to go slower. And in a high stress environment, development happens faster. But there are trade offs to that as well. So the idea is if you develop slower, perhaps your brain can develop more fully. There's more plasticity, there's more opportunity for learning and adapting to your environment and having more offspring in the long run. But if you're raised in a very dangerous environment, there's more of a pressure to mature very quickly. Reproduce now before you die, essentially.
1: Yes, I think that there's the reason I was hedging about whether or not we've incorporated this into anything in my lab is that we have looked at this a little bit, at least with the concept of accelerated development. When I was a postdoc with Nim Tottenham, I published a paper with her showing some initial evidence that. Adolescents who were who had experienced caregiving adversity in the form of orphanage care as toddlers or as it infants and toddlers were more inclined to show a more adult-like phenotype during fear conditioning. And we interpreted this as evidence for some sort of accelerated development of brain networks that are implicated in negative affect and learning about fear. So we dipped our toes into it there. But when I think that the part that I'm more hesitant about was thinking about this from a reproductive perspective. And I think that there could be some interesting things there when thinking about sort of intergenerational transmission of stress, for example, and associated sort of caregiving strategies there. But we have not pursued anything at that level, which I think could be interesting to pursue.
0: There was a really interesting perspectives piece a couple of years ago by two anthropologists, Dorsa Amir and Willem Frankenhus. It was Something about the adversity exposed brain, and like calling this essentially a weird, in the Western educated, rich, industrialized sense of the weird brain is only something that exists in weird societies. The adversity exposed brain, which is something you see a lot in adversity stress research, if the argument was that adversity exposed brain probably looks like the normal human brain across cultures and Total throughout evolutionary history. And the yep. brain that we study as normal is like this weird, cushy brain that grew up in such a safe, rich environment.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I think I, I I resonate with some of that point to an extent, at least. I think it depends a lot on your definition of adversity um, and what we're counting, so to speak, as adversity. Uh, I think that having some degree of adversity exposure is the modal experience for many individuals across the globe and across history. So I think that there's something to be said for that. That said that uh, I think that and that I but I don't think that diminishes from the sort of public health significance of adversity exposure, nor does it mean that we should be unconcerned with youth being exposed to adversity as a potential source of, of health problems but i think there's something to be said for the fact that the brain i think sometimes there's a tendency or in an effort in good-natured efforts to try to or well-intentioned efforts to try to underscore the seriousness of early adversity and early life stress sometimes those efforts can be misinterpreted by lay people's indicating that exposure to adversity is toxic at, in all situations and irreversible and that an individual is at some level broken after they've experienced something like stress or adversity. And I think that's a very, that's not the message that's scientifically accurate, nor is it one that's particularly compassionate or one that we want to be sharing. I think there's something to be said about viewing all aspects of adversity exposure with nuance and thinking about this a little more carefully. And so that's part of where I get sometimes it's a tough line to, it's the tough sort of balancing act to underscore the seriousness of adverse exposure while also acknowledging that it's quite common, at least certain forms of adversity, and thinking about how to best communicate its significance to the general public.
0: This loops back around both to life history theory and to this idea that all of these continuous traits, it's not just like one is better, they, yeah. there's trade-offs. So. There there might be some metapsychological bias as psychologists who want to find silver linings even to negative traits, but it does seem that for these effects of early life adversity, like we were talking about earlier, on one hand, maybe in laboratory ideal conditions, you are not performing as well at delay of gratification, something like that. On the other hand, in a high stress condition, you might perform better than someone who hasn't been exposed to stress.
1: Right and I think that there's a lot of I think for example the study I was describing earlier that I did in my postdoc with Nim Tottenham where we saw this sort of accelerated development of circuitry that's associated with fear learning is that a good or bad thing to show that acceleration I don't know that that we should place necessarily a value judgment on that for individuals who are in situations or in contexts where they might not have a stable caregiver to protect them against potential threats It seems quite adaptive to have brain regions that are going to help you to identify and respond appropriately to threats come online earlier. That actually seems like a pretty, that seems like the brain being quite smart and quite flexible in its developmental strategy to me. I think where you, where we often see the biggest challenges are when individuals have brains that are have brains have developed brains or strategies that are associated with one context, and then there's a, a context switch where there can be something of a mismatch then, and that's mm-hmm. harder.
0: If you're exposed to adversity and you develop, let's say, heightened threat sensitivity, yeah. and then suddenly you're in a new safer context, but you're still seeing threats everywhere and you're just anxious. that you have PTSD-like symptoms. Exactly. That makes me think of the other evolutionary mismatch hypothesis. This has to do with our modern luxuries or vices. So things like how much sugar we have access to or a addictive nature uh, of smartphone social media, that I know has a big impact on adolescent social and emotional development.
1: Yes, I think that this is a, a broader construct that can apply to a variety of situations that we have many tendencies that can be quite, quite useful in the right context. And that can be also very harmful in another. I think that, yeah, I think it definitely does not, is not limited just to early adversity exposure. I would agree with that.
0: Do you know David Schwartz at USC?
1: I'm trying to remember if I know, I I've heard his name before, definitely. And I'm not sure if I've met him, but maybe you could tell me more.
0: I used to work in his lab and most of his research is awesome. on peer groups and bullying and Pre social media, yeah, so yeah, like yeah, yeah. Going, going into schools and actually looking at mental health consequences of where are you in the popularity hierarchy, or how does bullying, either being a bully or getting bullied, impact mental health and academic achievement and all sorts of stuff. And then when I joined, we had a new focus, uh, which was looking at the effects of cyberbullying and social media and these same popularity type measures on social media, and this actually. Overlapped nicely with COVID. We got lucky because when you're doing this type of research, Um, you don't have to go into schools and we started recruiting young adults as well and looking at social media and dating apps effects on mental health. And that's another thing that I feel like is a bit overlooked for adolescent research, romantic and sexual development. There was this paper by Catherine Page Harden a few years ago. It was called something like the elephant in the room. And I know exactly that, that was the catchy that. title. I don't remember the actual academic title that uh, followed that one.
1: It was like becoming a a sexual being or something like right. I, uh, the so yeah. Like if
0: you're taking this long term evolutionary approach, then clearly puberty and a, the associated brain development changes, especially those driven by sex hormones, directly or indirectly, they have something to do with sex. But you don't want to sexualize children as you're doing that research, so. You have to use some distance in talking about things like reward motivation and cognitive control, which are things that bear on sex and drug use, all these things. But it's, it seems, unless you're taking a very NIH focus, like looking at health risks, no one yeah. studies it from a, a more motivational perspective.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think about this, I've, I've thought about this a decent amount, like looking at more socio demographic. Trends over time that we see, we've seen cohort wise big reductions in sexual behavior among adolescents over time, as well as other kinds of quote unquote risky behaviors. And I think it's really interesting to try to understand what's going on there. I live in a residence hall at UCLA, and anecdotally, I have no idea this actually pans out into real science, but I've heard a number of undergrads and I say things like that dating is just too much drama and not worth dealing with there's obviously plenty of people who are also dating but I would be curious to know what this looks like at a larger scale level and honestly I think you alluded to one of the reasons we don't know much about is which is just it's really hard to get grant funding to study these questions you can get grant Funding to study risky sexual behaviors that are associated with, you know, unwanted pregnancies, and for example, and then on the other side, there's some fundable work looking at things like marriage and how to prevent people from getting divorced. But we don't know a lot about what happens in between, uh, at a normative level or at a sort of individual difference level.
0: The cool thing about these studies we did with David, uh, because we were looking at young adults, we could more yeah. straightforwardly ask about motivation, say, for being on dating apps. There's a massive increase during COVID. More than half of the single college students that we sampled were on dating apps. And prior to that, it was, it, it, it's still pretty big. I think it it was at least 30% even pre-COVID. But I I wonder if now that people are back in person, if it's still above yeah. that for single students. I but don't know. I'm not I'm sure. sure. But you saw this kind of... Rich get richer effect. So, this isn't data that we collected. We don't have access to the actual Tinder data, but Tinder has published data on the distribution of likes between users and it's Pareto distributed, just like income inequality. So, top 20% of users get 80% of the likes. So, we found that for a subset of users, they reported high satisfaction in all the dating apps, like whether they were looking for romance or for sex or whatever. And most people reported very low satisfaction, especially most men, which is what you'd predict from the evolutionary psychology perspective, where it's like, in principle, especially for dating apps, which often people aren't using them to pair bond, they're just using them to have fun. In principle, a small number of men can satisfy that need. And you get, and then you get the rest of the population who, so this was longitudinal data, mental health declined. As a function of how satisfied or dissatisfied you were with your dating app usage at time one, there was only a small subset of users who maybe they were single at time one and they were more relationship oriented and they weren't single at time two. So they found someone. Those are the only people who said, This is pretty good. Or (laughs) there was a small subset of men who
1: were having a great time.
0: Yeah, they're having a great time. So for them, mental health was fine. And then similarly for social media, it was like a rich get richer thing. If you already had, a solid social network and you were just using social media to stay in touch with them and supplement that mental yes. health was good there, there were even positive effects but for most people it was negative and it was more negative the more time you spend just passively browsing or interacting with strangers
1: yeah that's been my sense from the of, of just of, i haven't done any actual research myself with social media but that's been my take of the literature is exactly as you've characterized that It's not as if it's a totally distinct context from people's lived experience in in real life. It more often just exaggerates the differences that already exist, such that if somebody is doing pretty well and they go on social media, it's not going to suddenly send them down a depression spiral. Instead, it's going to be a nice way to even further strengthen your social network. But people, if they're not doing well and then they get on social media, are likely to to wind up in an even worse place. Especially as you said, with their sort of passively absorbing other people's purported happiness.
0: And do you do any research on effects of COVID specifically on social or emotional development?
1: We have looked at COVID specifically in we had one sample where we were watching it over time where we were it was a longitudinal study that had was wrapping right before COVID started and we decided to just keep sampling people for a while. That was a young adult sample, 18 and 19 year olds. We honestly didn't see that much of an effect of COVID on average in people. It was more, for across two different sort of um, sets of analyses that we performed, it seemed more like the individual differences that were there swamped whatever COVID effects were, that were there, such that people who were lower in loneliness to begin with were more likely to persist in that. Same with people who had better emotion regulation skills persisted in that. And in terms of thinking about the emotion regulation side, noticing that people who had better emotion regulation skills consistently over time reported less anxiety, for example. We also found that people who had reported better social support at the beginning continued to report better social support, even though there were some subtle changes about who was providing it over time. There didn't seem to be like that much of a COVID factor for us, but small sample, one time.
0: It's it's easy to look at that and assume, therefore, these must reflect stable traits within individuals. But it's also easy to look at that and say that whatever the environmental effects are, people's social environments are more or less the same. Their home environments are more or less the same. So all of those are influencing results as well. So how do you tease those apart?
1: I think that's exactly right. And I think we can't, at least in that data set, we couldn't really tease those apart. Um, Because I think that what we can say is that One external, one large external event that everybody experienced to some extent wasn't enough to shake these other environmental variables. In a large enough data set, maybe we could see more subtle interactions of how, depending on, for example, if COVID caused you to be suddenly living in a different context, to be living alone, where for one individual versus another, maybe then that would be enough to actually move people around more. But if they are more or less, like you said, sort of persisting in their in the relationships that mattered most, in the regulatory strategies that mattered most, then I think it was we it, we did not see just a consistent effect of COVID, and that's been my take of what I've re- read in the literature in general is it, it we have not seen just a whopping effect of everybody showing a uniform sort of drop in well being by five points or whatever. It's more um, of these more subtle interactive effects of some kind of vulnerability factor being exacerbated potentially, or sometimes helped, at least in the short term, by um, experiences of COVID.
0: What do you make of the dual systems model of adolescent motivation and risk-taking, which says that subcortical reward brain regions, or just emotional brain regions more generally, mature earlier, and cortical inhibitory control long-term planning regions mature later, and there's an adolescent specific gap that can explain some unique behaviors for two adolescents.
1: Yeah, I think it's an it, I mean, it's there's a reason we're talking about it because it's mm-hmm. been one of the most impactful models that has shaped a lot of the work in adolescent neuroscience and behavior. And I think that's for a good reason, that it has given us something to something testable and something to work with. I think that. We did one study where we sought to look a little bit at dual systems models of decision making, looking at how people made potentially risky decisions on a driving simulation task and found pretty good evidence for this dual systems model, at least. And we looked at both sort of multivariate and univariate approaches and within individuals, at least. We found pretty good evidence that on the the trials where they were making riskier choices, we were seeing greater evidence of reward-related brain activity on trials where they were making safer choices, greater expression of um, activity in brain regions that are associated with more top-down control. We saw among adolescents, we sought out to rigorously test this as best we could and saw pretty decent um, support for it. That said, I think that where we get into trouble with the model is when we take it maybe a little too literally. So in A couple of ways, or we allow it to overgeneralize also in a couple of ways. One is subcortical is a really broad category. And so I think that we should expect to see distinct developmental profiles potentially associated with, for example, fear and reward type circuits that they might show different developmental manifestations. I think another thing to keep in mind is that many developmental trends, thinking about growth charts at the pediatricians, all sorts of things they're showing on average tendencies and not things that we should expect to see within each individual. And I think that there's been some decent evidence for that when looking at something like dual systems models, that while we might generally see some of this in the literature, that does not mean that we should expect, we should use that to predict individuals' behaviors necessarily, or that we should see that among every individual adolescent over time.
0: In my own work, we've been trying to tease apart the effects of age and puberty on brain development in these types of regions and one somewhat like dual systems model that i've been using as a heuristic is that puberty seems to have more unique subcortical effects and i know you just mentioned subcortex is literally the whole brain minus cortex so that's not very useful here but it does seem especially in emotional brain regions um, like hippocampus and amygdala you have more sex hormone receptors and more puberty-specific hormone-related effects, whereas cortical maturation seems to be more linear and just age-related, relatively independent of puberty. Does that sound right?
1: I buy it. Love to read it. Sounds cool.
0: It'll be a (laughs) lot. And then for for pubertal timing, too, like we, we talked about, there are these more social environmental effects, puberty above and beyond. Effects mm-hmm. of age. So, when you're including all of that in the same model, it gets complicated to interpret because puberty and age curves, they're practically the same developmental process. So, they're so collinear that it's hard to tease those apart. And then, once you put them in the same model, you have puberty relative to age, which is something like that more environmental based finding measure. And that gets interesting to interpret.
1: Yeah, it's a different meaning than just when we think about what are the effects of puberty. It's puberty while accounting for age or over and above age, which has a slightly different meaning to try to make sense of. But yeah, I think that in order to just, this is part of why I tried to avoid doing puberty research for as long as possible was always, I was like, we don't have a big enough sample. No, we don't have a big enough sample. You really need to have a pretty epic amount of data often to be able to look at pubertal change and age-related change and to really dissociate them. and so. I think, I think we'll see a lot more in the near future with the emergence of some of these large public data sets like ABCD, HCPD, et cetera.
0: Is that what shifted focus for you? It it wasn't a lack of interest, but it was now you have the data, so now you're starting to do it.
1: I think a little bit of both. I think that, I think a little bit of both. I think I, I partially, I've And I credit my student, Claire, for making me more interested in puberty by thinking about the social features of it that made it more interesting to me as a phenomenon. And then I think also the fact that it seemed like something possible for Mm -hmm. a long time. It was just like, yeah, maybe that would be cool to look at, but I'm not going to do that in a sample size of 100 people. Why bother thinking about something that I can't pursue?
0: That's interesting because I started from the more social aspect of puberty, and I think have gotten more biological over time. Cause when thinking about these effects, how to disentangle like something that might exist across species that you might have a mechanistic hormonal explanation for an evolutionary theory of why this change is happening. If something is the same across mammals, you can be pretty confident what's going on, but then especially for these more environmental effects. There's like all the millions of variables that are unique to humans and like human learning and human experience that just can completely confound your results. But if you see, oh, testosterone seems to be doing the same thing to, I don't know, dopamine function during reward receipt across species, maybe this is an evolutionarily conserved developmental process.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's that is a place where the animal work can be really helpful at figuring out what are the things that seem like a pure that might be more conserved and might be sort of more purely biological nature and then comparing that to what are the things that are not fully explained that way. I think I'm truly interested in both aspects of it, but I think being I think there's more possibilities now for how to dissociate.
0: Yeah, the animal research can also bring up some unique hypotheses that I, at least I wouldn't have considered. Otherwise, we talked about this at flux. We were talking about reward motivation and psychologists often use reward as this kind of domain, general process. Like the brain is processing reward and I read, and for testosterone, that seems to be true because it's happening through dopamine function, which is neurotransmitter basically for anything that feels good. But then the female sex hormone effects for estradiol and progesterone, they were much more context specific, you saw positive relationship between estradiol and sex drive in rodent studies, but a negative relationship with progesterone. And for food motivation, you see the exact opposite.
1: Yeah. You can imagine some sort of reproductive narratives there for how this might make Mm -hmm. sense and how there can be multiple it's not, it, it points to there not being like a single sort of reward system, for example, at play, but thinking about these hormone factors being context specific and relevant for promoting sort of adaptive functioning that depends on the context.
0: But when, when talking about a theoretical model, let's say you first learn that there is a reward system, you just say, striatum processes reward. That's neuroscience 101. And then you build up from there analogous to physics, where you learn about classical mechanics first and then every subsequent class is everything was wrong. Where, (laughs) Where do you think the right balance is within psychology or within neuroscience for something like a model that is oversimplified and wrong, but useful versus not doing that and just saying everything is messy and we don't understand?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I tend to like to have models. I think that they're pretty useful. I think that they allow you to move beyond. I often think about this as you could look at a bike and describe it as it's the thing that has wheels and gears. Okay, what do you use it for? What's it actually feel like to be on a bike? What do you like? How? What's its function? Can you predict anything based on that? I think a theory gives you the ability to synthesize a lot of different pieces of information into something that allows us to test more and to build upon. I personally like to fall on the sort of side of having a theory and then testing the bejesus out of it to find out where the boundary conditions are and being transparent about them, but still not necessarily just tossing the theory out with the bathwater, instead seeing it as a sort of working, breathable document or idea that can be edited more and more as more information is accumulated. I think that's in the cornerstone of science is we use data to create a theory. We use that theory to test more data that comes in, and then we change the theory.
0: Does your research become more or less theoretical over time?
1: That's an interesting question. I think that in a funny way, both. I think that the I have more big picture theoretical ideas because of accumulating data from more disparate sort of areas and seeing from a bigger picture, how does this all tie into something like experience-dependent brain development? What are all the ways that we can see this kind of coming together? Or what are all the ways that we can think about early adversity acting on emotional processing and seeing that bigger theoretical picture? But then at the same time, I'm more, I think I was a little more rigid earlier in my career about being like that there was one way of interpreting or understanding something like emotion regulation. And I've moved beyond, I think, having, feeling like there's one theory that I have to rigidly adhere to there, to allowing for a little more flexibility.
0: During grad school interviews, I don't know if it was you, but the hardest question that I got, which you wouldn't think is hard, was what is emotion? It's one of those things where you know, everyone has this sort of intuitive understanding of what it generally is. But once you try and get scientifically precise, and I imagine the same happens with emotion regulation specifically, there are so many subtle differences that you can have yeah. in your definition that just completely change how you would interpret your results depending on those.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And I think that's, that's the case for most psychology, that we can... And I, that's why I think theory is still helpful and why these having these sort of scientific sort of definitions are still helpful. Because we can know that if it covers 95% of the time, I think it's still pretty useful. I think it's also useful to know what those that other 5% is comprised of. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about the 5%, but it also doesn't mean that we need to throw out what the sort of core definition is or core theory is.
0: Are there any current or future research plans that you want to discuss in our last few minutes?
1: I guess I won't, I'm not sure if this is like a a specific plan, but I'll say that something I've become really interested in lately is thinking there's some papers that I, I sometimes read in my graduate seminar talking about transitions and turning points, times of significant transition, for example, going through puberty, I think could be one where you can imagine those as being opportunities where somebody really changes course or where the individual differences that already exist can just become magnified. And it's something that I've read about before, but haven't thought as much about in my own work. And I'll just say that's something that I'm thinking a lot more about lately and thinking about all the different kinds of um, transitions in life as opportunities for developmental change. So I was thinking about this as a unifying feature of a few things we're doing right now in my lab, thinking about, weirdly at the same time, puberty, the transition to adulthood for people who are around the age of 18 entering emerging adulthood, so to speak. And then I'm also really curious about pregnancy and what happens during those key transitions that have multiple features of change to them, often biological, often psychological and social. And how do prior experiences come out during those times? Are they times when we could imagine peak opportunity for change, uh, changing one's trajectory? Are they times when we might expect, for example, if you've been exposed to early life stress, for that to become a, a heightened risk factor for uh, poor emotional health and being? I think there's a couple of interesting questions to be addressed there.
0: Are you thinking of? teen pregnancy specifically, or just pregnancy as this process.
1: Oh, those are three separate ideas. Yeah. I'm That's thinking. exciting.
0: I did a podcast with Paul Bloom a few months ago, and we were talking about different social cognition, emotion stuff, and I kept finding ways to think, oh, maybe this hormone is related here. And he said, you know what you are? the a guy with a hammer and everything is looking like a nail. Cause that immediately is, well, puberty and hormones and emotion and pregnancy. I got yeah. those out of order hormones were supposed to come last as the mechanism <laughs> that connects those Did that feel a, a cool future area our research yeah too,
1: yeah, I think so. I think that's part of what got me interested in this idea that I think there's there's a lot of opportunity for development and change that can occur, for example, during something like pregnancy, and I like one of the things I think is interesting about pregnancy is it's not age locked that you can people can become pregnant. Anytime from uh, their sort of teen years up until 50 or so, and there's something cool about that. Uh, thinking at it as like a developmental stage that's not necessarily linked to age, but has a lot of other potential for plasticity associated with it.
0: That is really cool. And a lot of the organizational brain effects that you see during puberty, you see even larger effects of the same sort prenatally. And some of that could be transmitted through the mom and through her environment and stress and all of that.
1: That too. So I think that from an intergenerational perspective, it's one of the sort of one of the more striking windows that we can have in looking at how transmission may occur across generations.
0: That's also exciting. Thank you very much for your time, Joan. Thanks,
1: Thanks for having, having me. This is fun.